This talk by Joan Sutherland, Warmth and Curiosity, An Introduction to Koans, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on February 12, 2009. Let me give you a a little bit of background about the koan tradition and also uh, a lot about what they're not and a little bit about what they are and how to work with them. The Koan tradition began in China about 1,200 years ago. And when when Buddhism moved from India to China, it really changed in some profound ways. In a way, Chinese Buddhism was sort of Buddhism 2.0. It was a a very different thing. It became a very different thing than it had been in India. And one one of the big shifts that happened about 1,200 years ago was that um, teaching had primarily been done like this, with one person talking to a group of people. That was the Indian model, and that was the early Chinese model as well. But there were a couple of really great teachers in China who began teaching in a completely different way, which was much more in conversation and in dialogue rather than speaking to a group. So, and, and that points to one of the most fundamentally important aspects of the koan tradition, which is that the, the certainty that awakening happens in relationship. That it, it, either it's a relationship with another person or it's a relationship with an, an, inanimate, an apparently inanimate object or another kind of being. But that there's some interaction that happens and that awakening occurs when there's a true meeting between a person and another person or another being or another something. So um, these dialogues, these conversations with one teacher in particular were so powerful that people would often just wake up right in the, in the midst of the conversation. And they started being collected, these stories, and then they started being used by other people. And another really important thing about koans is that they're not parables or teaching stories in the way we usually think of that. There's no moral at the end of the story here. What they do is they represent, they, they more than represent, they are a moment of awakening that when we take into our meditation, it's possible for us to experience the same thing that the person in the story experienced. So we're not reading about someone's aha moment, we're actually experiencing the same aha moment for ourselves. And why this should be so is still mysterious to me, but it's been working for 1,200 years, and it's just amazing. But that's how they began. They began with these stories of actual encounters, actual conversations between actual people that other people took into their meditation and found that they could um, find the same state of mind that was being described in the koan. Um, over time, the, the body of koans grew and they started to include poems, bits of songs, uh, things from popular culture as well. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an organic body. It keeps growing. It continues to grow. Koans drop away. If they, if they don't quite have the same resonance anymore, new koans are added. Um, but they share something about having been 
passed down over many generations, and that seems important, that many, many people have contributed to the koan, so that by the time it comes to us, it's been um, worked with and frustrated over and loved by generations of people, and all of that is somehow in the field of the koan itself. So the koan is not, despite appearances, words on a page. A koan is a field, and it comes to us with the field of everyone who's already worked on it, and we then sort of have it in the center of the room, and the koan becomes everything that happens in our responses to the koan, okay? So it's not just that thing, it's everything that happens, and it's everything that happens inside of us in response to the koan. It's the, it's the call, which is the koan, and it's the response, which is how we relate to it. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, as a result of that, have they become, do you know if the time to have the insight has gotten shorter as a result of the building of the fields? <laughs> you know, my experience is yes. Uh-huh. I, I really think so. I mean, yes, the sort of morphogenetic field idea, you know, yeah. that, that it's easier to solve the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle at 5 in the afternoon than it is at 10 in the morning. <laughs> because people have been solving it all day, um, which is actually true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think of when, when I first started um, my Zen training, you know, back in the Paleolithic, I mean, you sort of thought you would spend 20 years on it, you know, before you had this sort of breakthrough experience, and now people are having it in a week and a half, you know, or six months or two years. It does seem to be speeding up. Yeah. yeah. And whether that's been true all along, I would love to know. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I do want to say a, a few things about what cons aren't. Uh, there's a, a misconception that they're riddles or paradoxes or they're just, you know, meant to baffle you. Um, another fundamental thing about koans is that koans are meant to be helpful. That's what they want, you know. They're not meant simply to baffle you. What they are meant to do is to speak to an intuitive part of yourself that often um, doesn't, doesn't get into the conversation because our cognitive minds are so um, forceful in, in taking it over. So they speak to our intuition, they call forth our intuition, but not only our intuition. They're calling us to bring our intuition forward, marry it with our, our cognition and our emotion, and, and, our, and, and also our, our you know, sensory experience as well so that we respond to a koan with all parts of ourselves rather than just one or the other. Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean, that they're not riddles. Um, one of the most famous koans is the sound of one hand, which has gotten mistranslated into English as the sound of one hand clapping. I promise you, I read Chinese and Japanese, there is no clapping in that koan. <laughs> this, what is the sound of one hand clapping? is a riddle, and it's not very interesting, really, you know. What is the sound of one hand is a profound, amazing, mysterious question. What is the sound of one hand? Okay, so you can feel that right away, right? So that's what a koan is. It's that 
profound, mysterious, surprising question, not just a riddle or a paradox. Um, And one of the things that, that you will discover if you go along with this is that far from being baffling, they begin to seem more and more like a tremendously accurate description of the way things are from a certain perspective. And the koans are an invitation to see things from that perspective. They're also not um, life questions. And this has to do with that thing about being from the territory of what you already know versus as a sort of messenger bird from the dark. Um, Life questions, something like, uh, the the word koan is kind of starting to enter English to mean something like, my koan now is, what work should I be doing in this next phase of my life? Or my koan now is, how do I open myself to more intimacy in my life, right? Those aren't koans, those are life questions. And they're really great, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. But to make them koans, you have to tweak them a little bit. Because so far they're just ego projects. So far they're, what am I going to do? How am I going to get? Or you know, And a koan will ask, rather than um, what should be my life work in this next phase, the koan question is more like, who's asking the question? Who wants to know? Which takes it to a whole deeper level. You might get an, an explicit and particular answer to the question. I ought to, you know, move to Ohio and go back to graduate school. I mean, it might come like that, but it will come from a, in a completely different way because you'll be asking, who wants to know? What is that? You know, who does want to know? What's the who? What, what does it mean to ask? What does it mean to, to have work? You know, all of that. So it becomes a really different kind of thing. Um, if, you, if you're asking something like, how can I open to more intimacy? The eye is pretty strong in that. So the, the koan tweak on that would be to ask simply in any situation, what is most intimate here? So it's not the eye trying to get something for the eye. It's what is most intimate in this situation in which I'm a part, but I'm not the sole actor here. Okay, so can you feel that shift? What is most intimate here? Which includes me, but isn't limited to me. Okay? Um, uh, it was mentioned a couple of times when we went around that that sort of old cliche of Collins being a form of Dharma combat, you know? Um, they can be misused in that way, and they have often been, but again, that's not essential to them. Their desire is to be helpful, and maybe these days, once in a great while, it would be helpful to be hit upside the head by your teacher, but mostly we found other ways to accomplish the same thing, and it's interesting that there are other ways to accomplish the same thing, the same moment of having the floor pulled out from under you. They won't judge you. They're not a test. Um, They might show you how you judge yourself 
and that seems to have come up a little bit in response to the first koans. They will show you your own judgment, your, the, the extent to which you live by winning and losing, praise and blame, all that kind of stuff. But they're not doing that. They're just showing, showing it to you. Uh, and if, this, if they raise the delusion, as I was saying, they'll also show you what it's like when the delusion falls away, which is what you experience. Delusion, absence of delusion. So that they give you these moments of freedom over and over again so that you can really experience what it's like free, when you're free and therefore the world is free. Um, and so one shift that it's really important to make in, in uh, approaching koans is we're not interested in answers. It's true that in the traditional way um, koans were taught, and I still teach it if someone's interested in it, there are answers to koans and you, get, you, know, you, you stay with it until you get that answer. And that's a great way to do them. But in, as we work together, Look not for answers, but for responses. Make that shift. How do I respond to this? Not how do I solve this or answer this. Okay? And let me stay with the response and see what happens. And there's no wrong response. There can't possibly be a wrong response. Um... Maybe just a, a couple of other things that, that seem important to me. In Chinese, uh, there are a number of ways to talk about enlightenment. There are a number of words for it. There's enlightenment and awakening uh, and realization, and those things we're familiar with. The Chinese also spoke of this thing, whatever it is, as becoming intimate. So that's... Um, a way of considering awakening I'd like to offer you, becoming intimate. And when they spoke about intimacy, these old Chinese teachers, they talked about the intimacy that was inherent in every moment. And that what awakening was, what the task of practice is, to liberate the inherent intimacy in any moment. It's already there. We just have to liberate it. We just have to let it be expressed. And that's something that koans do. Um, they give us a way to look for and experience that inherent intimacy in any moment. Um, in terms of the relationship that I've mentioned, is that there is this kind of call and response that happens where the koan calls and we respond. So another really important part of, of koan practice is uh, allowing ourselves to be fetchable. That a big part of what meditation practice ought to be about is, is creating and maintaining the state of fetchability so that when the call comes, which is always coming from the world, we, we can respond, we can be fetched. 
And koans give us a lot of practice with that because they're endlessly fetching us if, if we're willing. Um, I mentioned briefly that there are a couple of different ways to work with koans. You can also work with them individually and um, just and go through them one at a time and, and find the traditional responses and answers to them. And then we are reviving an old, the old Chinese tradition of working in groups. And that has felt tremendously powerful because you have the, the wisdom that comes from the group. You have the wisdom that comes from a chorus of voices rather than the single pure note of, of your own practice or of the tradition. Um, so reaction is the opposite of intimacy. Yeah. And reaction is in a way the opposite of response, too. Yeah. Yeah. Reaction is all about you. <laughs> and it's all about yeah. Yeah. Because I was thinking about fetchability is such a very different state of being than reacting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not sure I quite get the word vegetability. It's so interesting you said that. What I heard was vegetability, like being a vegetable. Oh, I still don't quite know what you mean by vegetability. It's just my mind to know. Yeah. Well, it's it's a kind of um, openness, you know. I mean, that's the simplest way to say it. And one of the ways we often talk about it is that that it it's great if we can cultivate a basic stance toward things of warmth and curiosity. Okay, So warmth as an activity of the heart, curiosity as an activity of the mind, both of them being relatively open states that allow something to come and touch us and change us and, and move us. Does that... Does that okay. To fetch us. Yeah, to fetch us. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's always doing that and mostly we're sort of not paying attention to the fact that it is and the moments when we do open to it, we know how what kind of glorious that feels. So, so the last thing I want to say is, again, back to kind of fundamental assumptions. And this is really important because, uh, because it's really important. <laughs> um, the, the fundamental assumption of the koan way is that having a human heart-mind is not a problem to be fixed. It's actually kind of an amazing adventure. It's an amazing invitation to be on. So we're not aiming to fix ourselves or improve ourselves or you know do any of that kind of stuff. We're actually interested in cultivating an attitude of warmth and curiosity and cultivating the circumstances in which um, that caring about the world and that interest in the world can flourish most freely. And I think it's really important to say that because in a lot of meditation traditions, in a lot of spiritual practices, there's a fundamental assumption that having a human heart-mind is really a problem, and that meditation or spiritual practice is about fixing that. And this is a completely different ground to stand on. Okay? This is about... Um, exploring the, the possibilities, the potentials of having a human heart mind. Okay. 
So, um, and, and, and something that goes right along with that, which we've touched on before, or I think should be apparent by now, is that, that Cohen introspection isn't about quieting the mind. Um, it's about working with the, di- the mind's inherent dynamic quality. Okay? So, and that doesn't mean that quieting the mind is a bad thing. <laughs> quieting the mind is a really good thing. And when working with cons, it's one, it's, you have to have a, a stable practice that lets you get fairly quiet and stable before you bring the con in. But once you do, you're working, you're riding the horse the way it's going. You're working with the dynamic quality of the mind rather than trying to change it. Okay? That might be a shift for a lot of people who are, are, have, are used to other meditation traditions. Then there has to be a kind of constant discernment, as I was saying before, about when that working with the dynamic quality of the mind is alive and creative, and when it becomes habitual and spinning and just the same old stuff. Right? And that's the time to return to the silence and the stillness. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.
These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.